0: again and welcome back to our um, part two of our podcast about flags of convenience. Uh, I'm Julia and I'm Taryn. Uh, in our first episode, we talked with Dana Miller, senior policy advisor at Oceana Europe. And for this episode, we're going to go a bit more in depth into the policy allowing the use of flags of convenience. Uh, We mentioned previously that they arose through a bit of a loophole, so we'll discuss that further and also about what governing bodies are responsible for regulating their use. Um, For this information, we spoke to Aldo So,
1: Yeah, um, Aldo has a lot of great information to share, so let's get into it.
0: So, we are here with Professor Aldo Kirchhoff, who is a professor of law at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. He is the Tier One Canada Research Chair in Maritime Law and Policy. Thank you for joining us and doing this interview. Welcome. So, just our first question is um, what are flags of convenience? And, sort of, how do you know if a vessel is flying a flag of convenience?
2: Okay. Let's start with terminology first. Uh, Flag of convenience is essentially the term that is frequently used uh, in um, in the media and also in the literature. Uh, But there's another term that is used, uh, open registers. There are closed registers and uh, open registers. And closed registers are those where only owners' shipping which is beneficially owned, where the ship is being registered, is permitted to be registered. So let's say, for instance, you're a Canadian ship owner and uh, you're based in Canada and you want to register your ships, you're considered a beneficial owner and therefore you can register your ship in Canada. Canada is a closed register. With open registers, uh, well, basically, there is no requirement of nationality. So anybody can essentially, any person of any nationality, can register a ship under the so-called open registers or slash flags of convenience. Also um, in um, uh, open registers, flags of convenience, um, ships can be registered against corporate names without necessarily revealing the identity of the owners. So, what that means in practice is if you're trying to find out sometimes who the actual owners are it can be quite difficult it's really dependent on the owners of the ship whether they actually disclose their names they could have simply a numbered company and the numbered company may be uh, may have shares owned by a number of persons and indeed the company that has been set up as a numbered company in panama for example um, may be owned by another numbered company somewhere else. So if you start looking at one corporate owner owning another and another and another and essentially finding that there are no names disclosed may become very difficult to know exactly who owns a ship.
0: Sounds like it gets very complicated very quickly. <laughs> it is. You kind of started to touch on this also, but so there... Are- there are certain countries that tend to be more prone to using open registers and flags of convenience. Can um, yeah. Like, is there a reason why those particular countries tend to use them more often versus others?
2: If you look, think in terms of the major registers, uh, among the top 10, there are quite a few open registers. The largest, Panama, for instance, followed by Liberia, they are historic kind of uh, open registers, flags of convenience. And... Um, and they offer financial benefits for ships to be registered under their flags. And they've been very successful. They've been doing this since the late 40s, early 50s. And they've attracted a lot of the tonnage away from the traditional maritime registers like the United Kingdom, Scandinavian countries, and so on. So essentially what you have there is a competitive business. They're essentially trying to attract their tonnage because they will they'll be able to charge registration fees, and, um, and essentially there are some other financial uh, benefits for them. So for countries that uh, you know might not have perhaps um, other industries or diversified economies, they might see this as an economic uh, opportunity, especially if they have an economy that is focused on services like Malta and Cyprus, for instance.
0: Are, are there like specific laws that allow these open registries or is it more of like a loophole or like who who generally is responsible for overseeing the law of the sea?
2: Well, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has specific provisions on ship registration. And basically any state party to, the, to that convention can open a register. So there is no such thing as a classification of open registers, no is only ship registers. It's how they're operated that will tell you whether they're open or closed. Essentially, if you operate your ships from an open register that allows you to register your ships because you're not a national, and then does not really have many restrictions on who you employ to work on your ships. If you have a Canadian ship, you have to employ Canadians. But if you have a Panamanian vessel, you can employ anyone. So you shop for a crew around the world, and, uh, and there are very competent persons produced by maritime academies in, for example, uh, Philippines, Vietnam, China, India, and so on. And uh, they're paid a lot less than Canadian seafarers. So then a um, you know, ship owner that's trying to cut costs will uh, essentially shop around for flags that enable the ship owner to do that. Plus, they, they may provide some other financial incentives too. So for example, Panama does not charge income tax.
1: it's an important factor.
2: (laughs) It's it's quite effective, isn't
0: it? Are there policies that could diminish the use of, I mean, it sounds like you sort of just touched on this a little bit, but like, how can we diminish the use of open registries and sort of promote a more responsible ship registration? Um, Like, would it essentially be enforced on like a country to country basis or could the UN or like the IMO step in? Is that even realistic? Um, I mean, you did sort of touch on it, but...
2: Actually, you know, a few years ago, there was a United Nations General Assembly resolution, which said something along these lines that essentially advising states, you know, if they have ship few registers, they have to exercise effective jurisdiction and control. Um, if they are unable to do so, they should suspend the registers or get out of the business. And it was interesting it came out of a UN General Assembly resolution but uh, looking at ship registration alone will not be enough to address IUU fishing that is only part of the equation um, what might be very important here is market regulation and uh, essentially um, the kind of regulation I'm thinking of is of course what already operates in some countries like the European Union for instance where essentially you have enforcement of um, of conservation regulations even in restaurants measuring the length of a fish <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, i mean that's really interesting to i didn't realize that some countries even involved spain restaurants in spain is that yeah, what you said?
2: yeah that's right so uh, and um, yeah uh If you have uh, certified fisheries and there's increasingly an industry for certified fisheries, um, then uh, essentially that uh, has made it easier, at least for for buyers and and the supermarket chains, to know they can rely on the origins and the ethics of the products that uh, they would be selling to customers, right? So we need more of that. We need more of that, more broadly, but that's not enough uh, because uh, you know it's a bit the prisoner's dilemma, and it may pay to cheat. And as long as it pays to cheat, the system, we will continue to have IUU. So what we need here is essentially all the major fishing states coming together and actually working together. And they don't necessarily work together because they're they may be competing with each other.
0: Interesting, it's, it's mind-blowing. Totally. <laughs> it really is so mind-blowing just how, you know, it's open registries are very widely used and so many people know so little about them. And it really is such a, it's a large scale issue that and just the more I learn about it, the more intense and crazy it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So we've talked about possible ways of how to potentially eliminate the use of flags of convenience or change certain policies to make open registries more of a closed registry. But do you think this is actually ever going to happen? Or do you think that regardless of what changes, there will always be to a certain aspect, the use of an open registry?
2: Yeah, as I said, not all open registers are the same. Okay, there are those that are run properly and there are quite a few that are not run properly at all. And uh, the the unfortunate result is then those that work on board do not get the kind of protection they should be getting. Um, uh, one should also be careful here not to assume that um, substandard chipping is always in open registers or even old shipping, always in, old regi- in, in, in open registers. We know there are flags that are not registers that are not run properly and they're resulting in abuses misuses and all kinds of problems and, um, and the challenge here is how do we make all states run responsible registers that is the challenge that we have
1: yeah and that it seems like it's a very big challenge too
2: yeah and uh, you know um i don't know if you're familiar with uh Port State Control and uh, the agreements, uh, the Tokyo and the Paris MOUs, for instance, these are memorandum of agreement among maritime authorities of those regions and Canada's party to both. And uh, it's a system which does spot inspections of ships and ports. And if there are very serious violations, they don't let those ships depart until they rectify the violation. So this has helped tremendously in improving standards and addressing the weaknesses of flex state jurisdiction. Because if the flex states are not exercising effective jurisdiction and control, some port state will.
1: Yeah, so it more comes down to at the end of the day of having a properly well-run registry um, that will kind of eliminate these malfishing practices.
2: Yeah, and um, of course, there's going to be the need for more cooperation here with respect to fishing vessels because, you know, how would a particular register know whether a fishing vessel is a problem vessel or not? Unless there is a, a blacklist somewhere, which they all share.
1: Yeah, that, and that doesn't exist?
2: Well, some vessels, um, well, <laughs> I cannot say that it doesn't exist, because RFMOs have uh, caught up to this. So it really depends what organization, what regional organization. But uh, where they've had uh, vessels with, you know, that are frequent offenders, then uh, they have tended to be flagged. <laughs> no pun intended there. But um, what we need, rather, is a kind of an international system so that this information is available to everybody. And the ideal scenario is one where we have, essentially, registers that are shared by all port states, by all ports. For instance. And then, uh, mind you, uh, this was how the Paris and MoU originally started. The idea was that there would be a database with all the inspection data. And that problem vessels, they would have annotations against their entry. So when they're visiting the next port, the next port will know that this is a vessel that they need to inspect again.
1: Right, and so um, yeah. sorry, I think this is the last question, probably. Um, do you think even if, like, a internationally accepted blacklist, to a, a sense or like port? wide list of vessels that should be avoided, if that were adopted, do you think all countries would actually follow that? Because a lot of them are getting a large economic benefit from having these types of registries.
2: Yeah, and sadly, I am skeptical. And skeptical, not necessarily because states are unwilling, sometimes they're incapable of doing that. The fishing fleet may be politicized and become very difficult. To secure cooperation, when you have a political fishing fleet.
1: Yeah, that's it's tough.
2: <laughs> it's a complicated subject. It's fascinating, and uh, uh, the more you get into it, you, you realize are these still are, are these things happening in this day and age?
1: Wow, that was so much information. Thanks so much again for joining us, Aldo. Um, What do you think, Julia, taking away from this interview?
0: Yeah, it definitely was a lot of information to absorb and just sort of confirms for me how complex the issue is. Um, It really is just taking place on such a global scale, and I feel like we have a long way to go before the situation really improves. Um, Was there anything that stuck out to you in particular from both of the interviews?
1: Yeah, I think one of the main things that both Dana and Aldo highlighted and talked about was really the only way to combat the use of flags of convenience is through a global effort. So essentially each country needs to do their part. So they need to be more transparent, um, run their registries properly um, so that jurisdiction is being held up and that the law of the sea is being enforced on all vessels that are fishing or shipping in that area.
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with everything you said. It really is so interesting how it, it really is going to come down to each country doing their part and One specific example that really stood out to me was um, when Aldo was talking about how it takes market regulation on some levels as well. And like the restaurants in Spain that are measuring fish to make sure that they're like properly caught and that it's the correct size um, to be sold to them. Um, It really is just going to take a concerted effort from so many different parties. And that is part of what makes Dana's work so interesting too is it becomes this huge financial issue uh, and so they're going to, like, they're combating the issue on a finance level working with insurance companies. Um, and so I, I just, I also agree, it's just a really brilliant way to, to go about it. Um, but it really is just so complex, and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of transparency. And hopefully, we can, you know, make an impact by continuing to be aware of the issue and try and, try and lessen their effects on fishing as a whole
1: yeah exactly those are all great points thanks so much for joining us everyone and listening to our two-part series podcast about flags of convenience we really hope that you learned something and are leaving this podcast knowing more about flags of convenience than you did before
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, if this topic sparked any interest for you, um, Aldo gave us some reading recommendations about flags of convenience and other issues surrounding the global fishing industry. Um, They are Fishers and Plunderers and Voyages of Abuse, both written by Alistair Cooper and also um, Outlaw Ocean, written by Ian Urbina. Thanks again for joining us. Music for this podcast was provided by Owl Lampson.